Bibles to Acts chapter 26. Sunday morning, we're studying the book of Acts together, and here we are in chapter 26, very near reaching the end of our two-year journey through uh, the book of Acts. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand to the guys that are coming up the aisles now with Bibles. They'll put one in your hand so you can follow along this morning. And then if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Acts chapter 26, verse 19, the Apostle Paul speaking. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. And therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand witnessing both small and great, saying no other thing than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now, as he, that is, Paul made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But Paul said to him, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do believe. And then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, not only you, but also all who hear me today in this room might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. And when he had said these things, the king stood up as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they'd gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, this man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. And then Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege of being able to turn to your word this morning, this living book, this book that is going to outlive the heavens and the earth and have the final say, Lord, in every uh, great and small event in, in life in human history. And we thank you for the privilege of being able to study it this morning. We pray that you would anoint it by your Holy Spirit and that you would give it a life and application that only your Holy Spirit can bring. We look forward to continuing to worship you now and to communion with you as we study your word. Thank you for the privilege. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> we remember as this is uh, kind of the second week that we're in this chapter, so for just a moment's review, uh, for those of us who weren't with us last time, the Apostle Paul is in an auditorium in the city of Caesarea. It was a Roman capital of the Roman province at the time in what we know today as the nation of Israel. And he is surrounded by all of the pomp, all of the majesty, all of the power and, 
and the beauty of Rome within that building. There is within the room also the Roman governor by the name of Festus. There is a, a, a neighboring king by the name of Agrippa who is also in the audience within that room and his sister Bernice, as well as all of the prominent people, all of the wealthy people, the powerful people, the famous people of not only Caesarea, but all of the surrounding region that is the the who's who of any kind of list you might put together uh, concerning Caesarea and beyond. All of them are in this uh, room. And they're in a room for a particular purpose. The Roman governor by the name of Festus has, uh, has kind of played games with the Apostle Paul in conjunction with the previous Roman governor by the name of Felix. And in their dithering, they have failed to uh, give Paul the proper justice that he ought to receive as a Roman citizen under Roman law until finally Paul, frustrated with all of it, he pleaded his case, uh, appealed his case to Caesar, which a Roman citizen could do to where if he was not getting justice on the lower level of the Roman Empire, his case could be heard by Caesar himself. Paul uh, in, in, uh, brings forth and, and uses that right that he has as a Roman citizen to do so. It leaves Festus in a difficult spot, and that is he's now going to send Paul to stand before his boss, Festus's boss, Caesar, uh, send Paul as a prisoner without having any formal charges against him. So Paul is in this room. It's not so much a formal trial that he's uh, in this room uh, regarding as much as a hearing in which King Agrippa said, well, I'd like to hear this guy and what he has to say. And all of it's in the hopes that they will be able to find a charge, some accusation of wrongdoing against Paul. Paul is uh, then with the wave of a hand, Agrippa early in the chapter, uh, the very beginning of it, he gives Paul now a prisoner. He is chained among uh, this august crowd, and Paul is given permission now to speak. Nobody knows what Paul is going to say to them. I mean, in the natural mind, we would expect that Paul would stand up and he would denounce uh, his treatment uh, in the Roman courts, denounce Roman justice as, it, as he had experienced it for two years, or that he might get up and plea his innocence concerning all of the charges that the religious Jews had been brought, uh, had brought against him uh, to cause his incarceration to begin with. He doesn't do either of those things. What Paul does with this opportunity when it's given to him by King Agrippa is he stands before this crowd and he proceeds to give them his testimony. Uh, Paul had to look at all of the colors, all of the wealth, all the jewelry, all the power and titles that are sitting in front of him and thinking to himself, no one but God could put an audience like this together. We esteem the Apostle Paul very highly, but you have to remember in his day and outside of Christian circles, this was just a tent-making uh, Jewish rabbi. And here is Paul. He's been granted this incredible audience. He realizes only God could put something like this together, and he hasn't put them together so that he can then complain about either Rome or the Jews. He realizes these people who have been assembled in the overarching providence of God in order for him to preach the gospel to them. And so that's precisely what he does. And he preaches the gospel to them in the form of his testimony. He speaks to them about his salvation story. 
And Paul's testimony is like the testimony of every single Christian. <clears throat> Some of the specifics are different, but they're always the same thing, three ingredients, and he brings them out here. He addresses the group and speaks to them about the man that he once was before he came to know Christ. And it's a horrible picture of himself that he paints there, even under the influence of religion and so forth, the, the, the barbaric human being that he was. And so he tells them, this is the man that I used to be, and this is how I came into contact with the gospel and Jesus himself and became a Christian. And then third, this is the life that I've been living ever since. And that's essentially what he declares uh, to this uh, uh, audience. As we mentioned last time, this is the third time that Paul, uh, Paul's testimony is recorded for us in the book of Acts. And each of those testimonies is largely the same, except that each one of them has one, two, three, four things that are a little bit different in each one of them, because under the influence of the Holy Spirit, Paul brings them out in light of the fact that no one of the three audiences that he was speaking to related to his testimony was exactly the same. So depending whether they were Jews or Gentiles, rich or poor, educated, uneducated, whatever it might be, he would bring out certain things and neglect other things perhaps. And in here, this testimony, this third and final time he gives his testimony in the book of Acts, Paul clearly emphasizes three great truths to this audience that uh, sits before him in the hope of persuading them to become Christians. And first he declares to them uh, the, uh, in, in his testimony of God's ability, Jesus' ability to dramatically change any human life in the same way that God had changed Paul's life. The second thing that he emphasizes is Jesus' fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah who was to come and promised to the Jews and the world and how Jesus fulfilled that in his life, his death, his burial, and in his resurrection. The third thing that he emphasizes is the fact of resurrection in human history and specifically Jesus' resurrection from the dead. He emphasizes it in verses 6 through 8 and again in verse 23. I want us to take a moment this morning to examine uh, these three points of emphasis that Paul makes in order to understand why in the world would Paul talk about these things to that non-Christian audience? Why were these important to him to emphasize? What's the wisdom behind it? What's the reason behind it? And then to look and understand why these things are still important uh, reasons for a person to put their faith in Jesus and become a Christian even today. In his testimony, uh, Paul emphasized Jesus' ability to dramatically change a human life, and he offered himself as an example, as, as proof uh, positive for it. How it is that God can take any human being, whether it is secular darkness, whether it is religious darkness, and some of the worst atrocities that have occurred in human history have occurred under the banner of religion. But how God can, can reach into any life, no matter how steeped it is in whatever darkness it might be, and his ability to pull someone 
out of moral and spiritual uh, darkness and into moral and spiritual life, to take a person out of the bondage of sin, however great the bondage might be, and then out of the bondage to selfism and selfishness. And our skin, inside of this skin, is the smallest prison that exists in the entire world. It's called our flesh. And how God is able to take us out of the uh, imprisonment of, of sin and self and to, and, and, uh, and to be delivered into freedom. The reason that Paul, and there can be many reasons for it, but surely one of the reasons that Paul brought this up in, in this audience that was before him, it's important to realize that as King Agrippa sat there in all of his majesty, and right next to him was his sister uh, Bernice, that actually in the privacy of their own heart, they were very, very morally uh, dark. And historians bring forth the fact that almost uh, certainly in this particular uh, portion of their lives, though both went on to marry uh, other people, but at this point in their life, they were involved with one another physically and sexually at the time. And so Paul comes and he speaks, about, he, he speaks about God's ability to deliver out of darkness, whatever the darkness might be, to be able to save people out of that darkness and into light. And he knew that what he was saying uh, in his life as a, as a testimony to it, that it would not only have a deep impact upon Agrippa and upon Bernice, but upon every single person in that room that was listening to him. All of us, before we come, uh, become a Christian, all of us are in bondage to sin. All of us are in bondage to selfishness and selfism. It takes God coming into our lives to begin to free us uh, from that. Uh, a Christian can once again put themselves into bondage to sin and to self, but they need not. But before we become a Christian, we have no option. We have no power in our life. We have no will to do or power to do uh, to break free from those things. And so Paul wanted uh, to speak this great testimony that was not only his testimony, but the testimony that God was offering to everyone in that room and offers to everyone in this this room uh, as well this morning. Paul emphasized Jesus's fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies in Jesus's, uh, in his death, his life, his burial, his resurrection from the dead. And he brings this forth to this audience that all of that, those prophecies from the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled in his life, in his ministry, death, burial, resurrection, that all of this was a basis for faith in him as the promised Jewish Messiah. And he did this because King Agrippa, though not a Jew himself, he ruled in large part over a Jewish population. And so he was very, very familiar uh, with the Old Testament scriptures as a result. And Paul made a very, very powerful point in declaring uh, to this audience that his faith in Jesus as the Messiah, there was no more unlikely person to ever become a Christian in that age than, uh, than Saul of Tarsus. But 
Here he is now a Christian in front of them as he's given his testimony to them, and he stands before them as a Christian, not on the basis of some emotion that happened in his life or some new religion that's come upon the scene, but that his faith in Jesus as the promised Messiah was firmly established in the solidest of all foundations that exist in the world today, and that is it was based upon the Old Testament scriptures. He refers to it in verses 22 and 23 as the prophets and Moses. When, as a Christian, I talk about the Old Testament as the Old Testament, but Jewish people don't refer to the Old Testament as the Old Testament. They refer to it as the law and the prophets, the law of Moses and the prophets, the two major groupings of the Old Testament scriptures. And so when Paul talks about Jesus being, on the, being the Messiah on the basis of the witness of Moses and the prophets, he's saying he is the Messiah based upon the witness of the entire uh, Old Testament. And the Old Testament scriptures, as Paul is bringing out to them here, declared how that when the Messiah came into the world, he would be born into the world, Isaiah chapter 9. And so Jesus was. That he would be born of a virgin, Isaiah chapter 7. And so Jesus was. That he would be born in the city of Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5. And so Jesus was. That he would be divine. Don't be surprised when he declares himself to be the Son of God and, and God the Son. That he, when he comes on the scene, he will be God in human flesh. Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 7. And so Jesus was and so he is. God declared that when Messiah came into the world, he'd be a descendant of the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then of the 12 tribes uh, that came out of the 12 sons of Jacob, that the Messiah would be born to the tribe and the bloodline of Judah. And so Jesus was, that the Messiah would be a descendant of the bloodline of David, uh, even with, of the families within Judah. And so Jesus was, that he would be largely rejected by his own people, the Jews, that he would be betrayed by a close friend and for a particular sum of money, not for 29 pieces uh, of silver, not for 31 pieces of silver, but for exactly 30 pieces of silver. How that he would be falsely accused and be silent before his accusers, that he would be beaten, he would be spat upon, that he would be pierced through his hands and his feet, Psalm 22, speaking of his crucifixion. And that while crucified, the soldiers would gamble at the base of the cross uh, for his clothing, again, Psalm 22. That he would not be crucified alone, but that he would be crucified in the midst of transgressors or in the midst of sinners, of thieves. And that he would, his side would be pierced and that he would be wounded for our transgressions. He would not end up on that cross because of any transgression he had done or any sin that he had committed, that he would be bruised not for his own iniquities, but for our iniquities, Isaiah chapter 53. And all of this and more, we could go on the entire morning talking about it, all of this and more occurred and was fulfilled in the life and the ministry of Jesus. And all of it was, as the Old Testament scriptures declared would be the case uh, concerning the Messiah when he was finally introduced at the Father's pleasure into human history. 
And we ask ourselves, why in the world, as Jesus comes into the world in his first coming, he fulfills 300 such prophecies. I've maybe listed 20 here. He fulfills 300 of them, over 300 in his first coming. The remainder he will fulfill in his uh, second coming. And why does God do it this way? Why did he paint this, this incredibly supernatural and miraculous uh, prophetic portrait of the Messiah who was to come before he even came into human history? And the reason that he did it was so that on a day like Paul stood in that uh, auditorium, so that a Roman governor by the name of Festus, and because a king by the name of uh, Agrippa, and his sister by the name of Bernice, and all of the rich, and all of the wealthy, and all of the famous people in that room, and all of the people in this room, and in the fellowship hall, and beyond, so that all of us could then look at this prophetic description of the Messiah to come, to look at the life that Jesus lived as it's recorded within the gospel, and to come to the only conclusion that you can come to, and that is that Jesus alone is the person that God was describing from all the way back to the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, at which point God began his prophetic description of the Messiah that he would send. And so that when we put our faith in Jesus as the promised Messiah, the promised Savior of the world, that we are doing so not on the basis of emotion. We are doing so not on the basis of becoming uh, moral or becoming uh, some kind of religious in our old age or in our young age, but we are putting our faith in him on the basis of the surest thing that exists in the world today, the only thing that is unchanging and unmoving, and that is the very word of God itself. And when you look at verse 27, as Paul speaks to Agrippa, Paul considered this prophetic witness to Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as it's contained in the Old Testament. He considered it to be so compelling that he essentially declared to Agrippa that it was, is inconceivable for anyone to even have a cursory knowledge of the Old Testament and reject Jesus as that promised Messiah. And of course, all of this was exactly as Jesus declared concerning himself to the Jewish religious leaders when he told them, you search the scriptures, speaking of the Old Testament scriptures, for in them you think you have everlasting life, but these are they which testify of me. Now, when Paul brings up the subject of resurrection, to this audience that is uh, before him, and specifically uh, Jesus' uh, resurrection from the dead. There's the realization that among those prophetic uh, promises in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah, one of the most famous of all is in Psalm 16, verse 10, where God declared through the prophet that the Messiah would come into the world. He would die, but he would not remain in that dead condition long enough for his body to see corruption. Translation, resurrection. 
He will die, but he will be resurrected before his body can rot or it can uh, corrupt. For you, as, as the psalmist wrote, for you speaking to the Father shall not leave my soul in Sheol. And then he goes on and says, nor will you allow your Holy One, the Messiah, to see corruption. Now, I think it's a good question. It's very easy to ask, especially if I'm not familiar with the Bible. And all of us, no matter how well we know the Bible, or we, all of us have had a place in our life where we're not familiar with the Bible at all. And so it's a fair question to ask, why in the world is Jesus' resurrection from the dead significant? Why in the world is it necessary for Jesus to rise from the dead as the Old Testament scriptures declared that he would and as ultimately uh, indeed he did? The Holy Spirit, Jesus' resurrection from the dead was heaven's way. It was God the Father's way of putting his stamp of approval upon Jesus, upon Jesus' message, everything that he taught, everything that he was, everything that he did. But maybe most importantly upon Jesus' message that man is justified or we are saved by simple faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. The Holy Spirit put it this way. In Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 4, speaking of Jesus' resurrection, that he was raised because of our justification. You see, during Jesus' public ministry, Jesus declared that he would provide the satisfying payment in his own death, burial, and resurrection. He would provide the satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins. He said he came into the world to be, give his life as a ransom for many. And then the hour of his crucifixion came. Jesus paid the price for the forgiveness of our sins upon that cross. And, but how can we as human beings know that his sacrifice meant anything to God? that it meant that it was acceptable to God, that what he had said about his sacrifice or what he had said at all in the course of, of his three and a half years of public ministry or the 33 and a half years of his, of his life. How could we know that anything was true? And God says the resurrection, the resurrection, his resurrection from the dead is the evidence of it. The resurrection is the evidence that the Father accepted the perfect sacrifice of his Son for the forgiveness of sin. The second reason that resurrection is important, and Paul brings it up, is because Jesus' resurrection provides us with something else, even beyond salvation, that all of us needs, and that is it provides us with a needed victory over death. And in all of this, as Paul lays out everything that he's laying down before that audience, Paul is endeavoring to persuade them. He is endeavoring to persuade them to become Christians. He is not sermonetting. He is not just delivering a lecture. He is endeavoring to persuade them every one of them to become Christians, uh, and, and he is endeavoring to persuade them on the basis of truth and on the basis of reason, as he declared there to Festus in verse 25. And Agrippa got it. Notice in verse 28, then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. 
Paul was working for persuasion on the basis of truth and on the basis of, uh, of reason. Now, I'd like to spend our uh, closing time here this morning by looking at the responses as they're recorded here for us of Festus to what it is that Paul is saying to him, the Roman governor, and then also King uh, Agrippa, and then Paul's response to each of them. I'd like us to consider Festus under the banner of no desire to be a Christian at all under any circumstances, and to consider King Agrippa under the banner of almost a Christian, and then Paul under the banner of altogether a Christian. Festus is this, uh, he is who he is, but he is a, a caricature of and, and a portrait of, of millions of people that exist throughout history, but exist in the world uh, today. Here you have in Festus the man or the woman who is just simply unwilling to give any serious consideration to God, to the gospel, to Jesus, to the Bible, to salvation, and, and there's a lot of people that are in that same category. And Festus speaks powerfully to both them and to us. You notice, and it's important to notice, that as Paul laid out his case for a faith in Jesus, his case he's laying out is based upon truth and reason, as he declares there in verse 25. And the case that he's laying out is so powerful and it's so compelling as he does so that Festus ultimately becomes uncomfortable in the environment, the spiritual environment that he's in as he's listening to this. And he feels forced to stop Paul by interrupting him in the course of his sermon. He's so uncomfortable here with where he sees this reason and this truth leading. And I think most of us as Christians, as we share our faith, we've experienced this very, very kind of thing repeatedly. As you would share spiritual things or we would share the gospel with family members or friends or other people that we love and we care about. And they will perhaps raise one objection to Christianity uh, or, or uh, another and, and an objection to becoming a Christian and so forth. And as you, we listen winsomely and lovingly, as Paul does here in this environment, and you listen to what a person has to say, and you say, that's an interesting uh, observation that you have. The Bible actually has an answer to what it is that you're saying. And here's what God has to say about what you just said. And then they raise something else. And then you, you uh, give them God's perspective related to that. And then something else. And then something else. And then a little bit at a time, uh, the kind of intensity of the spiritual conversation becomes so great upon the person especially if they're not interested in an honest conversation uh, related to spiritual things that, that uh, suddenly they, they want to break off the conversation with some kind of an emotional dismissal as Festus does here uh, with Paul. And he Paul, declares Paul publicly here to be mad. You're, uh, you're beside yourself. Your much learning has, has driven you mad. And I've had uh, these kind of conversations brought to a halt and uh, with, uh, with a, a Festus kind of a situation, and the person will end it in a comparable way. I don't want to talk about that anymore. Uh, I, I don't believe any of it. Uh, I think you're crazy, and I think anybody that, w all Christians are, are crazy. 
And so often, it's exactly what's happening here uh, to Festus. It's because they begin to feel boxed in, not by religion, not by spirituality, but boxed in in this terrible revelation and sinking sense in their own heart that they are being checkmated and boxed in by truth and by uh, reason. And so the need to, to dismiss it. And when so often a person can find themselves in that place, kind of unable to deal with it now, uh, all of the positions that they have, all of the excuses that they've made all of their life, no longer able to defend them on the basis of truth or, or reason, then you can so often get an emotional outburst and name-calling as Festus resorts to here. But the thing that every Festus needs to realize is that one day he or she is going to have to give an account for, they're going to have to be, they're going to one day be held responsible for the existence of the Old Testament scriptures and the miraculous, supernatural witness that they are to Jesus being the promised Messiah and the Savior of the world. And one day, every Festus is going to have to give an account for the life and the teaching and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in human history and give an account for his life and for his miracles and the supernaturalness of his life and the supernaturalness of his uh, teaching. And then for all of the untold hundreds of millions of people who, like the Apostle Paul here, and like so many of us in this room, have had our lives radically changed, supernaturally and wonderfully changed, not because we have a God gene or not because this is some kind of psychosomatic thing that we got pulled into and now we've convinced ourselves of. The Apostle Paul wasn't interested in any of that. He's running 100 miles an hour in the opposite direction, but he had this real empower encounter with God, and the only explanation for the man that he became and the life that he ended up living for the rest of his life was the reality of what is described here, what the change that occurs through faith in the gospel by becoming a Christian. And it's important if you sit as a Festus here this morning for you to realize that there will be no excuse one day for having lived 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 years in this world and having spent all of it ignoring all of this. Every human being has a responsibility by virtue of their existence in human history, the fact that God provided them to us, every person has a responsibility to investigate the teaching, the life, the claims, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus in the light of the Old Testament and in the light of the New Testament by virtue of the fact that God provided them uh, to us as a preparation for the coming of his son and then followed it with the only thing that could top that and that is the sending of his son as well. 
And I would guess, in my experience with people in general, and I am a people, I am no better or worse than anyone else, but I am saved. I would guess that most people, at least that I come into contact with, have rejected Jesus and Christianity without having read one of the four Gospels in the Bible. And I would venture to guess in my experience in interactions with people and sharing the gospel with people that, that Jesus has been rejected and Christianity has been rejected without having read one chapter of one gospel within the New Testament. That, my friend, is not reasonable. And if, like Festus, I reject Jesus as the Son of God, I reject him as God the Son, as Messiah, as Savior, then how in the world do I account for his life? And someday, every single human being is going to have to give an explanation for the life of Jesus as it's described in those four Gospels, not to me, uh, not to a pope, not to some religious body, but one day to give a reason for rejecting all of it to Jesus himself because everyone has, is appointed to stand before him one day and to be able to look into his face and then to say, here is the basis of truth and here are the reasons why I rejected you as the promised Savior of the world and uh, the Messiah. And, and, so, and, and, and because that day is coming, the importance of being prepared for that day. And when you look at, we look at things related to the Scriptures, and we, we see that what is testified concerning Jesus and his teaching and the life that he lived, the prophetic picture of it and so forth, you look at it and you realize we are dealing with truth in a profound level and we are dealing with something that is reasonable uh, in a way that few things in life are reasonable. What's so unreasonable about God's assessment of me as a sinner? What's so unreasonable about the realization that God could be and is so holy that but one sin in my life would separate me from a relationship with him. What is so unreasonable that God provides this incredible description of the Messiah in the Old Testament and then his son comes into the world and, and fulfills, uh, fulfills them to a T. I've got to do something with that. This, these, are, these are truths. These are realities in human history that I must do something with. They can't just be dismissed with an excuse or with the ending of a conversation because I'm uncomfortable with the conversation because a deeper conversation is coming before the very Son of God himself, and it will go far worse in that, in that conversation, if I don't have a proper discussion concerning these issues, either in my own heart or with other people in this life, so that I can then be properly prepared to stand before Jesus, him not being my judge, but him being my Savior. The importance of making that decision on what I do with Christ and what I do with the Bible and what I do with God, not on the basis of emotion, but truth and reason, and to do it sooner rather than later in life. Here is Festus. He dismisses all of it. 
Uh, he brings all of it to, almost to a screeching halt in his discomfort with spiritual things and his self-protectiveness in all of it. What Festus doesn't know is within two years, he's going to drop dead. Almost instantly, he's going to die so quickly and then move from the opportunity that was afforded him in that, that auditorium. King Agrippa, of course, under the banner of almost a Christian, verse 28. And there's some debate as to exactly what King Agrippa meant when he declared, you almost persuade me to become a Christian, as it is in the King James Version and the New King James Version. Some believe it would be better translated, uh, do you think, as it's in the NIV. But you know, <laughs> you know the NIV, Tom. I mean, okay, you know, so... What need I say more? If you're visiting with us, I'm kidding. So, but there are some who believe that that would be the saying of, of Agrippa would be better translated. Do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And candidly, I, I lean toward the former understanding of it as it's in the King James and New King James. You almost persuade me to become a Christian. And, and I do so because of Paul's response in verse 29 as you see it there. It's the only thing that fits the, the, the interpretation here. Paul said, I would to God that, that not only you but all who hear me today might become uh, both almost and altogether such as I am except for these chains. To me, Paul is clearly addressing the concern that Agrippa was content to be almost a Christian as a result of Paul's sharing as opposed to becoming an altogether a genuine uh, Christian, a true Christian like uh, Paul. As I mentioned before, uh, King Agrippa, he uh, ruled over the Jews, and so he was very familiar with their religion, with their customs, with their uh, scriptures and so forth, but also familiar <clears throat> with the life and the ministry of Jesus on some level. He was reigning during uh, the time that Jesus was alive and ministering, and so he would b have been familiar with uh, hearing these things about this man that was uh, you know, becoming so famous in teaching and what he was teaching. He would have also heard uh, uh, rumors related to the resurrection uh, of Jesus uh, from, uh, from the dead. And that's what Paul is declaring in verse 26 when he tells Agrippa, listen, none of these things were done in a corner. I mean, you, you couldn't have failed to, uh, to be aware of, of all of this as the king. And, and yet, here he is. He described himself as a result of Paul's preaching as almost a Christian. And what is an almost Christian? It is a Christian, a person who is very close to becoming one, but stopping short of actually becoming one. And the problem with becoming, uh, being almost a Christian is that it means as a result that I am only almost saved and almost forgiven of my sins and almost born again and almost delivered out of darkness and brought into light, and almost delivered from the power of Satan to God, and almost in a relationship with God, and almost on my way to heaven, and almost delivered from eternal judgment, and almost all of the things that Jesus describes the gospel to be there in verse 18 as we saw last time. And the cause of 
Agrippa's almost condition isn't exactly spelled out for us here. We know historically what kind of a, a person uh, he was. And, and so what is the reason? What is it that kept him in the almost uh, category rather than the altogether saved uh, category? But it isn't unlikely that it, it, at this point in time, it's his unwillingness to give up his a scandalous relationship with with his sister that he's is probably at the core of all of it is sexual lust there's a, so many people will uh, miss salvation for sexual lust this isn't something that's unusual this is, uh, sexual immorality as the Jews called it it was the sin of the Gentiles it has always been the sin of the Gentiles the sexual revolution isn't something new this is something that's been going on for thousands of years among Gentiles and in in, in the world And there's probably within him the same thing that influences a lot of people. He has no argument with the gospel. He has no argument with the scriptures. He has no argument with any of it. He may very well have believed all of it. And yet he's in that category of just a desire to continue in his sin just a little bit longer. Or perhaps concerning others, he he doesn't want to become a Christian because he doesn't want to give up other sinful pleasures. He doesn't want to give up power or he doesn't want to mar his reputation in some kind of a way in terms of how he's esteemed by his peers and his uh, constituency and and all. But uh, there's all these different reasons that people uh, like Agrippa say, I I come up to this place and, and stay in almost and never go in to altogether. But Jesus seemed to indicate that always, uh, always the thing that stops from going to almost and, and going into altogether is a darkness of some kind, uh, a unwillingness to leave behind some expression of sin or darkness or selfism or idolatry to then come into the light of a relationship with God. And Jesus spoke about it in John chapter 3 to a Jewish religious leader by the name of Nicodemus. And he spoke very profoundly in the context of the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, where Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the offer of salvation that Jesus delivers, the offer of salvation by God to mankind. But it's interesting to realize that in that context, Jesus did not stop speaking at that moment, but he went on to declare this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then here it is. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light. I mean, you never go into well-lit bars uh, or places like that. Everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the light, truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they, may be, they have been done in God. At the core of all rejection of Jesus, one day it will absolutely be revealed to be true. At the core of all rejection of the gospel and of, uh, of Jesus Christ is darkness. And you can bet everything you own on it, but it won't matter to you one day. Somewhere there is the darkness of some sin 
or the darkness of some selfism or self-determination or some will or some kind of idolatry that I am unwilling to leave in order to come into life and then live life on God's terms in the way that he created us uh, to live. And, and that is the, the reason and the truth behind all of it. Of course, we look at the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, and it's filled with almost Christians. It isn't just Agrippa here. We think about in the Old Testament, Lot's wife, that was an almost situation. Pharaoh was almost repeatedly. Then you go into the New Testament and it's characteristic of Pilate and then the rich young ruler, Judas himself, the Roman governor uh, Felix, who when he listened to Paul uh, preached to him about righteousness and self-control and judgment, he, was, he trembled at the teaching of the word of God, but he considered it an inconvenient time for him to put his faith in the Lord. And all of these kinds of people, they exist to this day. I have been these people people in my life before I came to know uh, the Lord. And then you look finally at Paul's experience here and his desire for all of mankind in verse 29, and that is that no one would ever stop in the place of, of almost becoming a Christian, but that we would take that next step and put our trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, give God our life to use with as he sees fit, and then to become altogether a Christian. And you picture him. Let me read it, for you. read it once again with me in verse 29. And Paul says to him, picture me, he's in the room. He raises his hands. His, he's talking to Agrippa. And then he moves his focus to the entire audience that is in the room. He holds up his hands, his arms, and the chains are around his arms. And he declares to them, I would to God that not only you but also who hear me today might be both almost and altogether such as I am. That is a Christian, except for these chains. And as he speaks it there, he speaks his desire to them. He's already de delivered the declaration that God desires to save every single human being. God desires to do it and desires the salvation of you and every single human being to such a degree that he gives that Old Testament prophetic portrait and then he sends his son into the world to fulfill some of the most awful prophecies that anybody could ever experience because it was the only way that we could be forgiven of our sins. It's another sermon. I won't go into it. But Paul has represented God beautifully in the sermon, but now he adds his own heart, his desire, his passion for souls, and he pleads with them that no one would, Agrippa or anyone in the room, be content with ever being almost a Christian and not becoming altogether a Christian. And so he is pleading with him, get out of that category of almost, get into the altogether category. You look at me, you see me change, you see me in these robes, look at what it is that you wear. All of the gold, all of the power, all of the fame, all of the wealth, everything, I envy you nothing about your life. I wouldn't change positions with you, not one bit, if it meant leaving being saved and altogether a Christian, to having all of that and being almost a Christian. It's a powerful scene that Paul is speaking uh, to them in that place. And it's a powerful passage, yet today as it's preached. And so it raises the question, how does someone become an altogether Christian? 
the same way that Paul did. And in a room like this or someplace in the course of our life, to stop and to learn what the Bible has to say. But even under the weight, if you've never heard anything else of the Bible except what you've heard this morning, and to say to God, God, I accept your assessment of me as a sinner. I've been less than perfect all of my life. And I believe that you are so holy that but one sin in my life, to say nothing of the thousands I've committed, but that one sin in my life could separate me from a relationship with you. But I also believe that you loved me so much that you sent your son to die on that cross to pay a price for the forgiveness of sins that I could, was disqualified to ever pay for myself being a sinner. And I believe that Jesus is the Savior and the, and the salvation that is found in him is the salvation that pleases you. And so I put my faith in him, his death upon the cross for the forgiveness of my sins, and in his death and his burial and his resurrection. And I honor you by doing the single greatest thing that a human being can ever do to the God of the Bible, and that is to trust in your son and the way that you've called me to. And I give you my life now as I turn away from my self-will and away from my sin, and I give you my will and my life and consider it a privilege to do so, that you would use my life for your purposes the rest of this life and all of the life to come. And when a person does that, God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit comes into your life. And like the Apostle Paul, you're made into a new creation. We become something altogether brand new by the Holy Spirit of, of God. Again, as Jesus put it in John 3:16, for God so loved the world, that's you, personally, you. For God so loved the world, you, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, that's you again, believes in him, trusts in him for salvation, shall not perish but have everlasting life. And that's God's offer to you. And that is the means by which, the way by which we move from almost a Christian or move even this morning from I never want anything to do with Christianity, the banner over Festus, and to move into becoming altogether a Christian. And you want to know the heart of God related to all of this? Peter puts it beautifully in his second epistle, and he said, concerning your soul, and God values, I'll, I speak for myself, God valued my soul long before I gave my soul any consideration at all, long before I ever valued it. And Peter wrote and he said, God is not willing that any should perish but that all would come to repentance. God's desire is to save every single person. But just like what the Apostle Paul does, and he represents God so perfectly in this situation, he takes it right up to the edge. He does everything short of putting them in a headlock and trying to force them into a decision. He makes the offer compellingly, and then he stops with the knowledge that a person has to make that decision on their own. And if God honors our freedom to accept him or reject him, then we have to honor that in other people's lives. 
But God, if anybody ever ends up in hell, ever ends up in the judgment that our sin deserves, it will never be because God didn't do everything short of touching our free will in order to save us. There are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after this service, and they would love to answer your questions, whether you're a Festus or you're an Agrippa, and answer your questions. And if you would like to then pray to do the single greatest thing that you will ever do in your life, and that is to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and enter into the life that you were created to experience. And, these, and they would love to pray, and it all happens in an instant. It's all there for the asking and for the receiving. If you sit here this morning and you say, I'm not ready to do that, not on the basis of one Bible study, but I'm interested, come forward. They give you some literature and give you a Bible, answer any questions, I'll be happy to do the same thing as well, the questions that have been provoked by the sermon this morning as, as, as we're here. And we're, I, none of us are afraid of any, none of us are, I'm not afraid of anywhere that the Spirit of God will take a person uh, in, uh, with the influence of, of the Word of God. Always those things two combine will always bring a person to faith in Christ. And if you're not ready to do that today, then uh, come and get a Bible, come and ask your questions, and we're happy today, if that's where you want to be, to, to give a progressive start in terms of answering those things. But we would love to see everybody be saved here this morning. Is Paul compelled in that room? He's never going to be in front of that audience again. I will never stand before the exact same audience that sits in this room here this morning. I have one chance for that. Next Sunday, many of you will be back, but certain people will never be back. This is a unique opportunity to communicate God's desire for every single person to be saved and to be saved today because today is the only day we have control of. Let's stand together now and we'll pray.